This week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. And Jay? Yeah. This is one of those episodes where we time travel back into the 90s and explore an entire decade with one band. <laughs> I love it. These are fun. In, in, in just hopefully around an hour, because that's the time I like to keep these two, an hour or less. Uh, after that, People get tired of my voice, and I understand. We'll try. We'll try. Uh, we're going to talk about a, a band from the UK, and uh, people might have heard of them. They're called Depeche Mode. In fact, they literally just put out a new record. Yeah, and we're going to explore them. Timing was the great. 90s. Yes. Well, with the uh, advent of calendars, now we can see when things are going to happen. <laughs> well, but we've done this series for a while now, and. I can't think of many other times when we've been fortunate enough to ha- talk about a band that's actually putting on, on new music. It's true. Previously, we did like Aerosmith and New Order and Tom Petty, Tom Petty, Neil Young. Yeah, hasn't happened, but this yeah. time it happened. So we brought two people who have been here before and we know that they know about Depeche Mode. Because once one time we tried to bring in people who didn't know anything about the band we were talking about, and it was a complete disaster. Uh, but this time, we are welcoming back to the show from the Great White North, Ian McIver. Welcome back, Ian. Hello. And from deep south, down south, well, where you are, Jay, in Austin, Texas, Matt Shiverdecker. Shiv, how you doing? I'm great, Tim. Thanks for having me. You guys are like at, at complete opposite ends of uh, North America. That's uh well not you're not exactly up in the up in the uh um the snow and polar bear end of Canada but uh just snow just snow <laughs> is it still snowing there or have we passed it, that point it, uh where I am it was snowing yesterday oh I'm that's, sorry that's a big no for me <laughs> that's a big no. yeah so we're going to talk about Depeche Mode in the 90s with this series we like to talk about bands that like you know we're were big and popular in the 80s, like we did with Tom Petty, like we did with New Order. But then how did they transition in the 90s? What did their sound change? Was there was there drama? Maybe there's some drama to talk about with this band. I don't know. Uh, we'll find out. And and figure out like, did this band survive the 90s? Like when we talked about, say, Van Halen in the 90s. Uh, they kind of kind of was t- it was didn't rough. survive they did not survive the 90s <laughs> not real i mean yes the band existed in some form but it was never the same no no uh but with depeche mode they've been a pretty consistent band in terms of putting out releases and uh also uh indulging in solo material from the various members of the group we'll get into that let me ask 
when was the first time you listened to Depeche Mode, Matt? I mean, that's a that's a great question because I mean, really and truly, my my uh, coming of age into alternative music, you know, really sort of coincides with Violator in many ways. And I mean, of course, they had singles before that time that had been you know pretty mainstream and successful um that i was you know i'm sure i was slightly aware of in my very rural ohio (laughs) upbringing but you know i started listening to Waxy around 1989 and then you know violator really you know it's kind of like all of 1990 and even 9 to 91 I would guess um so that's a time when you know I had first started listening to the station and that you know they played like every song off of the record practically like there were so many singles off of Violator yeah um so I couldn't say specifically when I was aware of them before that but that is certainly I mean that that would have been the first album that I bought myself uh okay. you know, un- undoubtedly would have been violator got it what as about a, you as Ian? a teenager was it was it yeah. around that time or earlier yeah so i mean i recall earlier like the video signals so people are people in 1984 that was a, a big single obviously in north america and that's when they started to build momentum in, in the states but uh, for me it would be violator and it's the first one that i actually bought uh, actually on cassette with my own money this is a cd that i Later got signed by Alan Wilder. It was one that I chose because it was, okay, it's the first one. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, I recall hearing them. I mean, uh, up here, the MTV equivalent, much music. I'd be watching that quite regularly gr- growing up. Uh, every Friday, my family would watch the the music video countdown. That so, And as they're building popularity throughout the 80s, I mean, they would be bit more regularly featured and then when 1990 came uh well fall of 89 with with personal jesus and then beginning of 1990 with enjoy the silence they those, those videos were obviously uh in heavy rotation so uh and uh i ended up uh laying a gift certificate uh to one of the local music stores and just at the end of march and uh that was the, the big album that was out at the time i was like oh hey i like these guys and and then uh, it went from there, and I'll continue on the story as we go throughout the '90s. Sounds good, Jay. Do you remember like when you first became aware of Depeche Mode? Yeah, they were Depeche Mode and The Cure were, I think, in junior high. So this would have been probably '88, '89. Were two of the first, I think, alternative bands, quote unquote, that I became aware of. There was just a group of kids I remember in school. That were super into them and now when i think back i mean i think at the time we probably would have said they're goth but in hindsight they kind of weren't i mean um in the way that you would think of like susie and the banshee or something but um yeah there was a member of group of kids in school that that really loved them and i heard it in passing i heard them in passing probably in the late 80s but it wasn't really until violator where i kind of put together like oh that song is depeche mode and started to obviously see them everywhere on MTV and on the radio a lot more. How about you? 
pretty much the same. I remember like people are people and hearing that. Um, I think that was even connected to, wasn't that connected to like the Olympics in 84? Some like in the UK, I don't want to, I want to say that that's somehow connected to that period. Um, yeah. A lot of countries did latch on at okay. that time with, uh, with the Olympics. I mean, it wasn't officially endorsed by the Olympics or, or anything like say world in motion with new order 99 for, for uh, FIFA. But uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of com- countries obviously latched on to, to that song. And I think, there must have been a station in Buffalo that was playing that song because I have it on a mixtape that I made when I recorded songs off the radio on my boombox. So like in between the Fat Boys and Phil Collins, there's like People Are People. <laughs> it was just another pop song to me. Like it, it, yep. I didn't have any like idea of where they came from or what they other stuff sounded like. I just knew that one song. But the first time I remember seeing them was probably the video is it the video for enjoy the silence where he's like has a like a crown on yes the the king with the lawn chair yes that's the first time i remember seeing them and being like oh that's what that band looks like okay and then actually hearing repeated singles and then once that happened um then i was like completely aware when songs of faith and devotion came out i was like i knew what was happening and i remember when it came out and all that kind of stuff so and uh we'll get into those records as we talk about the band we should talk about first of all i just want to mention because you know this is a band that existed from 1980 on the original lineup was dave gahan martin gore andy fletcher and vince clark what people might not know is that Vince Clark left and then became very successful on his own in multiple bands. He was in Yaz or Yazoo. Yeah. And then in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the assembly in between as well. Yep. So it wasn't like he, uh, you know, left and didn't do anything. Like he, <laughs> he basically had a different, I guess, a different vision. And, and I don't, I don't know. Do you know what the story is of why Vince Clark left? Uh, there, 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 there's different things uh i mean he he left right after speak and spell was released in 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 the uk uh some of it was just how big they were getting he was uncomfortable with that and uh there there's that aspect of it uh I, i think he just also uh that that's probably the main one that i've heard quite a bit i mean there's probably a couple others and uh who knows i mean that they've all spelled spoken nicely about uh, Vince's time with the band. So there, there's never been a mud slung or, or anything like that. So, and, and any drama around it leaving wasn't as publicized as something we'll get into later. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, he continued on because even afterwards uh, the, the Yazoo song, only you, I, I believe it was, he, he did offer to the band uh, as well, but they're like, no, no, we're, we're fine. And so they, they went on their own independent things, but both still on mute records, both being mentored by Daniel Miller and, uh, and obviously uh, went in different paths, but um, I mean, even in uh, 2011, 2012, uh, Vince Clark and Martin Gore recorded a, a side project together. So there's obviously uh, no bad blood there. And then Alan Wilder was who replaced 
clerk um yeah. correct yeah and... so he saw an ad in uh, melody maker um there wait they put an ad in melody maker yeah they didn't say who the band was or, or anything oh. so when he read it he kind of thought okay this is who it is because putting two and two together it's like okay i recall them having issues with one of their members leaving them this ad so uh my common sense is tingling type moment and uh so uh so he joined uh, they had a whole bunch of people but they couldn't really play the key keyboards and then he comes in and he's classically trained and it's like okay can you play this part now can you play both of these parts together and of course he's, he's doing it on a, uh, i mean the joke usually is i mean he'd be playing the part with one hand and reading the newspaper with the other <laughs> so, um yeah so he he joined and uh he he stayed on as a touring uh, musician uh throughout uh, 1982 and then eventually came to a point where it's like okay what are you, you doing with me i mean let me know if if you're just going to retain me on this part-time basis, essentially, I mean, I'm going to find other stuff. I mean, uh, but then they, but then in uh, January 31st, 1983, the first single uh, with Alan Wilder was uh, get the balance right. And then he was a full-time member uh, since. That, so he joined for construction time again. It was yeah, uh, that was, the was first with Speak and Spell and Broken Frame. So no, Broken Frame was just the three. Uh... Oh, it was just the three. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So I'm looking through the release history of, you know, it, they were pretty consistent, like 81, 82, 83, 84, 86, 87. And yeah. you can see them slowly getting more popular around the world as each record goes like the first couple are you know they do well in the uk they do well in sweden germany italy that kind of thing and then when they get to some great reward then it starts to chart then you get like a, a 51 in the u.s and you're charting in uh australia and you're charting in for black celebration the next one and then um when you reach 87 with music for the masses then you've got like top 10 charting and number 35 in the u.s so they're yeah. definitely becoming like a a global band as opposed to a UK band that had like has some random US fans like, yeah. like a lot of UK bands do. Yeah, I mean and the thing to keep in mind, I mean the, every album the Pesh Mode has had has been a top 10 UK album. And that on, on at release. I mean this isn't something that oh they charted later on. I mean they they've yeah. always had this falling and, and 87 and 88 is probably the best part point that, that we start to transition into the 90s so because in uh 88 uh, we'll leave up we'll we'll start off with the june 18th 1988 the uh, infamous rose bowl um, uh, concert and that so you could see their popularity is building up throughout the states throughout this time and then they have this concert. They sell at the Rose Bowl, sixty thousand people, <laughs> and this is documented in the the film One Hundred and One and the soundtrack. So actually, I've got did those that right there? <laughs> did um did those have so, singles on MTV? That yeah. So music for the masses. The uh, the initial Strange Love video didn't really get much airplay in the U.S. Though in '88 they had a re-release and the referred to as fans of strange love 88 as the album version so uh which was uh essentially a different uh mix of the daniel miller mix 12 inch mix 
that he was commissioned for. He didn't produce uh, music for the masses, uh, but uh, they they found that he really streamlined that song. And so as they were building up this momentum throughout the States and they have this uh, tour going on because, I mean, the three signals for music for the masses were released in 87. You can make exceptions for little 15 and may have 88, though that was just certain European countries, but they re-released the strange love uh, single to help promote this. And, and then they have this concert and then afterwards, they have the live album and film. And of course, this is such a high point. And it's like, okay, where are we going to go to next? And so, it, which brings us to now 89. And when they started recording Violator, they're like, okay, this is going obviously planned for 1990. It's like, okay, we have to change what we're doing. We're going to have to step it up. I mean, I don't think they were expecting it to go as big, big as they 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 did i mean they knew that they were getting popular but i don't think uh i mean when they did the rose bowl concert they think okay this is going to be a one-off stadium tour <laughs> not okay our next world tour is going to be stadium <laughs> so um yeah so they they go in they start recording uh violator they uh started off in uh, milan in uh, logic studios and that and the one single that came out of that in 89 was the personal jesus and the limited and the regular cd single um and uh so they launched that um uk date was uh, august 29th so those are the dates that i tend to work with are the uk ones for obvious reasons and and it's uh still like six months over six months in advance of the album but they start getting this response and in the States, there's such a demand for this band that this becomes like Warner Brothers' uh, biggest 12-inch single that they sold. I mean, they had Madonna, they had Prince, and then here's this alternative band. <laughs> I mean, three guys behind a keyboard that had sold out the Rose Bowl, and then now they're selling this million-seller single <laughs> and that. So they... I mean, the the demand kept growing, and then when it came time for 1990, um, and and that. So, well, after Milan, they went back to uh, Denmark to uh, Puck Studios, finished off the album, and then so in the beginning of 1990, February 5th, they released "Enjoy the Silence." Everyone is familiar with that 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 one. I mean, I, I would say it's their signature song, but. Uh, I have so many songs going through my head that my my perception of the general public is obviously right. quite skewed. Right. And that. So. Uh, so you mentioned the singles. Looking back at this, and I was, you know, re-listening to the album over the last week and, and the other albums from the 90s. I, I, I feel like like at least seven of these songs got played on the radio. Am I wrong, yeah. guys? Because no, like, no, there, it's insane. singles. There's four signals. So the second one was Enjoy the Sound. So I've got the three UK ones, the Limited, the Extra Limited. And then uh, third one was Personal or um, Policy of Truth, which, uh, little trivia, is the only single to chart higher in the US than the UK. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. That's a weird one. So, yeah. So they, they released Policy of Truth. And then the last one was. Uh, World in My Eyes, which, oh, wait, that's the problem. So, World in My Eyes. 
So that which is uh, the late Andy Fletcher's uh, favorite special. Those were the four official singles. Um, I don't have it. Uh, there was a radio promo of uh, Halo release. I was going to say, I was going to try so to catch was, you on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so let, yeah. So, um, so that was, uh, so that was North America only. Um, and then as well, there was the Strange 2 video, which also included Clean as a, a sixth video. So, um, so both Halo and Clean had videos made for that compilation and would have gotten airplay as well. Uh, the Halo video is known for having uh, an up-and-coming actress, uh, Jenna Elfman, in it. Oh, amazing. So she, she's one of the dancers. Hmm. Wow. And that. So, yeah. So, I, I mean, for people to say there were a lot of singles, uh, there was a lot of promotional material around this, this album. Right. And that. And obviously, I mean, the response, I mean, when it launched uh, March 20th in the U.S., so the 19th in the U.K., but I'm sticking with the American because this ties into another thing, there was the um, there was a signing in uh, Los Angeles at the warehouse. And they thought, OK, this is going to be a we show up and there's going to be some people will sign some stuff. 20,000 people showed up to this. They had to call in riot police. Wow. That's crazy. So, like for some dudes with synthesizers, yes, it's not Guns so, N' Roses. No, and, and and this this ties in. I mean, like with other stuff that's going on because remember this is 1990. So what else is going on? You've got the rise of the alternative nation going on at this time as well, right? And, and, and it doesn't fully coalesce into what the Americans would want their alternative sound to be until 1991. But I mean, this is a, a, another sign that, hey, okay, we're not just sticking with the traditional pop and rock of our parents. Right. It felt like, and Jay and Shiv, you can back me up on this. It felt like in 90, before we had the alternative explosion, but we did have alternative music because like REM, people knew REM, they were on MTV. Yeah. It James felt Edition. like there was like no like anything could get popular yeah. for like a year or two in the alternative space. Like you knew that the big heavy, you know, hair metal bands were going to be popular, but like there were these, there's faith no more in 89 in like living color was completely different than those hair metal bands, but they rocked. And then, you know, you mentioned Jane's addiction and it just, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the success a violator specifically there you know you really start to see that 
the the power of what alternative radio was becoming at, at that point uh that pre never mind moment where um where radio in the united states was so much more adventurous um and you know i mean i still have quite a few of the old uh station copies of of things uh that you know like personal jesus became such a massive hit that then warner rushed out white label uh 12 inches of an acoustic version of personal jesus for alternative radio to have like an exclusive because you know it was all over pop at, you mm. know at a certain point um so like <laughs> i still have the in you know the in studio 12 inch that huh. they would play on the air of of the acoustic personal jesus i mean i went yeah, back the acoustic to look version. Go ahead. i was gonna say the acoustic version wasn't rushed by warren that was always on the original mute cd and uh 12 inch Oh. So, well they i mean they definitely like but wanted, they wanted to promote it yeah yeah so, um, i remember that it. time when there would be like the radio exclusive version where you would hear like they would make a big deal about like this is you know there'd be some song and there'd be like an acoustic version of it that was and that doesn't like happen anymore there's no outlet for that anymore no now they just now they're speeding songs up Oh. <laughs> or slowing which down. is a whole which is a whole nother thing <laughs> right, right, but yeah right. i mean i i went to look out of curiosity um you know i pulled up the the 97x best of 1990 countdown and unsurprisingly violator was the number one album of mm. the year. yeah and and violator uh i remember in the 2000s uh my, my best friend one time he sent me a a, a list of various uh music list that uh, a site had did and it was different genres and that we were quite interested and when it came to the electronic albums violator was number one and that i mean they're listing all these other bands that you would think okay like younger crowd is gonna gravitate to these bands more but i mean they they, they were like no i mean without without this album without this band the other nine on our list wouldn't be here hmm. and uh I mean, even in 1991, it was being released, the Pet Shop Boys, uh, they were recording Behavior, and Neil Tennant was like, we heard it, and we were instantly jealous of it. It's like, they raised the bar, and that. They, they're like, okay, we were here, now we're up here, come and get us. Well, it felt like this is the, correct me if I'm wrong, but it felt like this was the first one that felt more organic with like the use of guitars, and it would yes. use and go more even that way with the next out record. Um, yeah, they they had guitars on like construction time again. There, but they were sampled and that. Right. But uh, by the time you get to the Violator, uh, Alan Wilder and Flood, they were looking at what was being done in, in rapid hip hop in terms of looping. So now they're they're taking sections of drum parts instead of programming each individual drum beat and that. So now they're starting to say, okay, we're we're doing the live performance and this would will come in uh, later into our conversation uh, for the next album. But uh, you're, you're right. in that it's more organic. I mean, like this, this album, when you look at electronic music, I mean, electronic music is very rigid. This album has a groove and a sexiness to it that you don't really get in the genre yeah. beforehand yeah. or even after. 
and that you can see like this is this stands out because it's like you know what it sounds different like it's not like okay we're just trying to get the four on the floor we're not trying to get people just up and dancing like this this has that that groove that it's like you know what you feel it yeah revisiting it i was surprised on how um how much it kind of gets out of the way of david can's vocals too like it's not over it's simple there's a lot of space in it you know it's not like waiting for the night or even like sweetest perfection like yes there's a lot of electronics and stuff going on but like (laughs) it's also like getting out of the way so that you can hear him sing and i think that helps it Mm-hmm. kind of transcend beyond just electronic music it's like no this is like full-on really well-written pop music yeah, yeah. and oh uh, i just want to say that um i mean they had you know there had always been great great mixes for them but like i i feel like coming into these singles you just i mean there are some remixes of tracks you know from violator on where i'm just like they're some of my favorite you know versions of you know i almost like prefer uh mixes to the album versions um they just always had great uh they they picked the right people yeah you you have to thank uh you have to thank uh francois kvorkian for this so uh, i mean um, like he he worked with Kraftwerk beforehand and that was one of the things. So, and plus, also the production with Flood. I mean, like him working in tandem with Alan Wilder. I mean, that was a very good example of synergy. Where it's like, okay, you you have two great people, but just together, they're producing something better. Uh, I mean, like this this album. I mean, I know we have our our rankings and worthy album. I mean, I'd go one step further and say this is a perfect album that in itself is a round table discussing odds only but this would be the first i mean this would be the first album right out of my mouth for that perfect album it's like one of those records where you don't skip a track yeah there's no filler on this revisiting and i was like there's no filler songs on here these are all very strong and the b-sides are great as well yeah um and we should also mention that like a lot of b-sides from this band uh a lot of compilations because of that a lot of remix compilations and all that kind of like this, this is almost as much as like new order in terms of the amount of releases they're not just records but like extra material and remixes and you know all I mean, that ba- back in the day when you could actually walk into like a best buy and there would be cds you know, I I just remember being blown away when uh, Warner did the reissue. They they did all the singles boxes, and you know, like that there was an incredible amount of physical product. You know, mm-hmm. kind of always when it came to Depeche Mode, um, and it just always sold. And- like the you know absolutely <laughs> rabid fan base that purchased everything. Uh, that's Ian. That's Ian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, UK Canadian. <laughs> I have a, I have a lot. So, um, uh, my wife. Uh, I have a question. I need to replace the word "devoted" with "obsessed." <laughs> Do you have? You mentioned the riot that happened at the signing. The warehouse the, cassettes. The no. warehouse. Do you have that? 
No, no, uh, that, 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 uh, I, I did try to track it down online like years ago, but then when my stereo with my only cassette player died on me about, uh, 15, 16 years ago, kind of been like, uh, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't mind, but, uh, I mean, one, one side is, is uh, an interview that they had, so I'm pretty sure you could find it online. Then the, the other side was, um, uh, something to do uh the metal mix from uh uh shake the disease the uh, shake the disease uh single and that uh, which i have so so i mean the interview is one thing but there was no exclusive tracks or, or anything so i didn't know that if that was like your holy grail of, of uh you know you're going you're you're searching for it endlessly <laughs> no no um uh from this era though the one of the holy grails would be the um uh, radio promo for Personal Jesus, the seven inch. Uh, on the back had the the um, the uh, nude model with each individual ba- members of the band, and depending on which one you had. Uh, so uh, the seven inch was um, was Martin Gore, uh, but the radio promo is a straight black sleeve. So and that that one is hard to find, <laughs> but um, yeah, so. That 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 would be that would be up there. But other uh, rarities, though, for Violator that I can show you. <laughs> so I do have the Japanese pressings for Viol- Violator and the associated singles. All and the Japanese the, pressing has like a whole bunch of other the, tracks, the right? Uh, no, it's all the same tracks. So, but they're complete. So uh, I started out with World in My Eyes and uh, Policy of Truth because it had all the tracks on cd whereas us uh, or north american one uh didn't have all the tracks same thing uh the uk did but uh especially for um world of my eyes so uh i i got those and then eventually i got the 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 violator and personal jesus because i'm like well i might as well the pers- the violator one is a double disc which has enjoy the silence so i've got the the first edition with the pressing there <laughs> on it so uh it, it duplicates uh, one of the remixes with uh, with its edit instead of having the the hands and feet mix. Um, so obviously, with the success of this record, they toured, they played stadiums yeah. in the U.S. Uh, yeah, tons funny, of. Funny, funny enough, this tour it wasn't as big as the last one. I mean, obviously, music for the masses they went to 101 dates with obviously. The, the Rose Bowl will be in the 101st, hence the title. Uh, but they only did 88 dates on this tour and that. So, well, they played to more people, obviously. But... Did, did they want to get back in the studio? Because they were back in the studio, I think, in 92. Uh, not really. So they took some time off. So in 91, um, Alan Wilder and Martin Gore, they recorded the song uh, Death Store. For the Until the End of the World soundtrack. Take my rest among the blessed. Mother, are you waiting? Father, are you pacing? I'm coming home. I'm knocking on. 
that. Um, there was also uh, the Jazz Mix, which was on um, a Flexi Disc for Vi with uh, the f Fan Club um, with one with one of the uh, Bong uh, magazines. Uh, and that, and then uh, Alan Wilder obviously stayed busy. Uh, he recorded with uh, Knights of Reb for Ed Head, which you have previously discussed on this we discussed episode. Discussed that record. And a uh, little secret for you and uh, and Jay, that is the episode how I discovered you guys. Oh, nice. Oh. <laughs> and uh, so, but but even before that, uh, one of the things when I was yelling at my podcast. <laughs> um, so prior to Ed Head, they released an EP called as as is where they had different mixers so alan wilder did the mix of uh come undone yeah, i guess kind of a trial thing but knights are opened for them on the world violation tour and even before and so they've been friends um but family man was originally re really originally mixed by jazz coleman of um killing, killing jokes so yeah so uh so when Ebhead came out, they had remixed it and included it. So that's why there's that sticker saying, oh, Family Man's included and it's remixed and all that. So, so that, that's how that came about. Gotcha. Uh, and, then, and then Alan Wilder also recorded uh, his third uh, release, uh, uh, Bloodline, for, uh, for Mute Records. So this was the first full album. The other two were EPs. This is also the first one with lyrics and had the face healer single with uh, Douglas McCarthy of <laughs> Nice Reb doing the uh, vocals. So he stayed. He I did stayed not realize those bands were so tight. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. So there, there's a long history between the two. And, and you can hear it in the music. I mean, as, as Nice Reb progressed, I mean, you can hear a lot of the pest mode rubbing off, off of them. And then even some of the stuff that they were doing, I mean, especially with, with Alan Wilder doing the Ebhead that would uh, come into play with the next album. But um, yeah, so he, they, 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 they stayed busy, um, but they, they took the year off. And then uh, the, the other big change that would happen that would uh, lead up was uh, they've gone moving to Los Angeles. In the which was not a good US, idea. Which was not a good idea. So Because uh, of the drugs. Yeah, so I'll, I'll I'll come back on 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 to to those repercussions, but yeah, so Dave Dave had had obviously gone down his own uh, abyss there, which which we continue on and we'll we'll come back to. But so they all took the year off, and then they meet in 1992 to record the follow up to Violator. Uh, they're again working with Flood and. Flood in the interim had produced a, a little album called Octone Baby for some band called U2. Heard um, of it. I'm sure, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure people have heard of that. So, but with that album, the U2 had lived together and worked together in, in Germany. And so then he, he had this idea for the Pesh Mode to do this. So they went around. I mean, they, they had been touring or recording around Europe. So eventually they settled on um, Madrid in Spain and they rented out this villa and they converted it into a studio, which was not the best thing. So uh, the other thing that had changed, they kind of had it a bit with Violator, but they wanted Martin's demos to be very stripped down. So it worked on Violator, but with this album, 
they didn't do any pre-production. They went straight into recording, which was a huge mistake because they're not like every band. I mean, like Alan and Mark would try jamming on like a basing a guitar and but they weren't getting anywhere it's like this is not how they function so uh, after these six weeks i mean they had not much usable um uh, alan toasted flood is like here's to a complete fucking waste of time <laughs> and, uh, and 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 i mean obviously you've got dave going through his own issues and and, and demons right now um uh, Fletch as well. He's wrestling his own demons because he's going through a, a depression that will come to a head uh, uh, later on in our conversation, and, and that. So, I mean, the band is not functioning. Whereas Violator, they were a unit. They were a gang. They were. It's like okay. And even if there was stuff that had to be changed, they knew it was for greater good. Enjoy the Silence being the prime example. It was originally a ballad. Martin was just on a harmonium and organ and then it's like, okay, no, there's potential. Let's, Alan Flood, let's, we're going to work on this. You guys take off, come back. And it's like, okay, we've sped up. Here it is. Let's add this guitar part. Let's do this. So they, they recognize, okay, we've got something special. That was not the case with the recording for, for devotion. <laughs> and so you, all these little things now are starting to, all these cracks and everything are really starting to go in the machine. Yeah. But, I wanted to talk about that record and in comparison to what just came out, how I remember when this came out, like all of a sudden they were on MTV. Dave Gahan was like a celebrity. Yeah. Like I, I know, I remember seeing him on my TV as much in like 93 as like Kurt Cobain. And um, when this record, and you know, when this character came out, how would you guys think of revisiting this record? Um, Jay, I know that you're, you know, uh, I'm not going to say what I said earlier. You're, you are a newer Depeche Mode fan. Is that what well, I, I didn't get the band, I think, at the time. Like, I knew the songs. I was well aware of them. I didn't hate right. them or love them. I was just like, okay, it's a band I don't really necessarily get. Revisiting it now and being so familiar with a lot of the catalog just because it's so popular um, and it's endured. Um I'm able now to, I think, under, get past the like, sort of electronic production and understand the songs better and appreciate Dave Gahan as a singer. So stuff on this record that I, I'm going to react to best or again, where the songs are the strongest. So I think the front half of the record feels stronger to me. You can hear a little bit more like performance feel. Maybe that's coming, like you're hearing drums that are more organic and dynamic. Uh, you're hearing like maybe some, bass that's not synth it's actual guitar bass in some of the songs so there's a little bit of a i think production switch here it also feels a little more 90s to me whereas violator feels more timeless i start to hear like some sounds and things that are more typical that i would think of from that maybe octane baby kind of sound um and i think there's a handful of really strong songs uh that really help help well i like one caress a lot i love the idea of like strings and cello and just his vocal and things staying simpler.
And then they bring back the sort of the formula a little bit from Personal Jesus with that bluesy guitar lick over top of, you know, sort of an electronic pop song for I Feel You that works really well, too. So those were some of my impressions of the record. It's so it's so interesting to me that, like, I Feel You was the first single because it's 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 kind of an abrasive track. And um, yeah. And then in that one, oh, my God, I mean, it has some there are some incredible remixes of that song but like for that to come out of the gate as the lead single i think was a really interesting choice but then you know it's kind of a allowed walking in my shoes to be such a, a layup because i mean that yeah. was, i mean that what the what that's a quintessential depeche mode song to me um that is i i mean i think is one of their greatest singles yeah, Alan Wilder had always intended and wanted to walk in my shoes to be the, the second single. Uh, when, when it came time for release, uh, Dave Gaunt, well, he wanted Condemnation to be the lead single. I mean, he mm-hmm. that, that's one of his favorite songs. Uh, and that Mine too. I, mean, I, I love that song, and I have since the record came out, but it's not a like a radio single. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I'll, and yet, I'll, I'll, and yet it was. And, and yet it was. <laughs> well, now you know what? It, now it makes me think of um, "Tender" by Blur, and like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, that was kind of a huge song. Maybe there's something to that. Right, radio was different. Yeah, radio was different. That's yeah. true. Yeah. yeah. So obviously, I've got the two singles here. I also have a promotional uh, postcard for I Feel You from the UK. So, um, but yeah, so that that was the first one. So, um, I mean, after. After Madrid, they went to uh, Hamburg to Chateau de Pape, or Pape. I'm not sure how it's pronounced in European. So, um, but uh, so there they established more of their regular routine. I mean, and, and despite like you've got a lot of these live instruments. I mean, this is still a very electronic album. I mean, everything is sampled and loops. The drums. Yeah, they're live drums, but they're just segments of, of live drums that have been then sampled, tweaked, quantized, everything. So same thing with the bass on like Walk In My Shoes. I mean, the, the only track you can actually properly say is fully live is this one crest, which also going back to I Feel You was the B-side and that. Mm. So, but um, yeah, so they, this is still very much an electronic album. And that, and obviously a couple things that I have here. So one of the ones that I have to show you. So nice little media promotional thing. <laughs> Promo photo has a biography, has an invite to a uh, pre-release party. So if I go back in time, I'm going to make sure to bring this. <laughs> 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 that, so that, that that's item number one on my DeLorean and, and, and that. But uh, uh, And then obviously I also have from the U.S. Uh, promotional uh I uh, sleeves they're 12 inch but they all have promotional of each of the the band members going through so so yeah so i i mean i mean for for me i mean this i i've said it on the previous my previous appearance this is my all-time favorite album and uh, i mean the, the this is, is is strong i mean when this came out 
for for me. I, I mean, 91, 92, I'm still going through a lot of musical discovery. I mean, by the time I fall of 92 comes around, I turn 15. So it's like, okay, I'm still trying to discover all these things and, and, and that. But then this album comes out and it's just like, Oh my goodness. I mean, like, I love the previous one. Okay. I'm, uh, I like what, I, what I'm hearing. So this is, this is the one that, okay. Unlock something inside me. And it's just like, okay. And now this is where it's like, okay, I'm not just listening to music. I want to go into the back catalog and that I want to listen to music for the masses and black celebration, work my way back. Right. So the, 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 like I said, violator was the one that started my music and this is the one that just took it to the next level where it's like okay you know what i'm not just going to listen to what my friends are listening to i'm going to start my own internal music discovery and say okay i want to go back and because of this what else is similar what else is like this <laughs> and right. that, because obviously 91 92 90 and, and this i mean i feel he came out in February 15th of uh, 93. And then um, the songs of faith and devotion had his 30th birthday last week on the March 22nd. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so we know what music was like in the U S and Canada uh, right. at the time. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Cause yeah, this is a band that's now going on what, you know, 13 years and they're competing in theor theoretically with bands that are on their first or second record in terms of being MTV rotation in terms of, you know, alternative radio station rotations and spins and, and they're just in a completely different musical space than all those bands. And they're like holding their own. Um, which yeah. That's pretty nuts. But that, again, that's 93. So. Uh, and, so and then, obviously held their own because they went to number one in both the UK and the U S and various right. other countries. So yeah, they, they do. They they managed much longer than many of their contemporaries to to stay uh, a band that alternative radio would would support. And they did a huge tour. It was yeah. debaucherous, from <laughs> what I've read. Uh, oh to, yes. <laughs> to uh, to the point where when it was over, Dave Gahan died. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll step back a, a bit just so in nine, 1993, because there's a few things that came up. So obviously, yes, in, in May of uh, 1993, they start the devotional tour. So this tour was 14 months, 159 days. I mean, there was stuff in between. I mean, beforehand on April 26th, they had Walking My Shoes, which we've discussed. But um, so they, they, they start this, this tour and again, everyone's not in the best of conditions. So throughout the tour and that, so um, uh, there were times where band members got arrested. So Martin, like in, in Dallas, I believe it was, he got arrested because he was heavily intoxicated. They thought he was playing the music too loud. No, he was singing too loud <laughs> and that. So there, there was cases like that. Um, uh, Dave gone and uh, the touring manager, Daryl Belmont, uh, he, they got arrested in uh, Quebec City, uh, if, uh, if I'm recalling correctly. Uh, so they were in Montreal. Um, so that, that there there were incidents. And then in um, October of 1993, after the main set, 
they've gone starts to have heart palpitations and that and it's suspected that may have been a bit of related to, to an overdose and that like he could not go back on to do the encore so Al Wilder and Martin Gore went back on and did the acoustic version of uh, Death's Door because that night they did the rotation rotated song One Caress and coincidentally that song that recording made it to Songs of Faith and Devotion live so when Dave had this medical issue, the song is act, from that show is actually on the official release. Oh, okay. <laughs> but um, I just want to point but, out that yeah, um, what you're describing is like Rolling Stones circa 1970 with like Keith Richards getting arrested or, mm-hmm. or like just the debauchery of them recording Exile on Main Street. And you're talking about guys that were like, 12 years before looked like nerds on computers and now, <laughs> yeah. they're, and now they're the rolling stones at their most debaucherous. Yeah, these stories sound very Motley Crue-esque. Yeah, yeah. That's what's so crazy. It's like they're, they're behaving the exact same way that the hair bands were behaving at the end of the, at the end of the eighties. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So in 1993, there are things uh, that in September 13th, they released condemnation and a live uh sorry wrong way the live uh limited which had some of the tracks uh but coming back to one of my prized uh collections so i have here uh two cdrs this was never released so this is the full devotional soundtrack it's also dated september 13th and that so that that i uh got uh alan wilder uh sold off a bunch of memorabilia and this was one that i was like wow. i want that <laughs> so wow. i don't have a PA and that but it is the full unedited soundtrack so in answer to your question yes i have stuff that was not released by the band <laughs> wow <laughs> and uh, um but uh yeah so but uh, a lot of the tracks were used on uh, songs of faith and devotion live which was just a track by track so they they didn't release a full live album of the tour um going back to world violation nothing live was ever released and that and they thought okay one rose bowl is such a big thing they didn't want to repeat themselves and also some of it is hindsight is 2020 uh there is uh some uh uh studio uh or footage for like uh, MTV and the sorts. So uh, the Dodgers uh, show in 1990 was recorded and uh, clips have been released online uh, thanks to uh, uh, Brat on the official website. But um, yeah, so, but this one was a bit more documented. And then in January 10th of uh, 94, they released the In In Your Room single, which also had it. This is the fold out (laughs) pack, which forms- I mean, did we have that at the radio station? Because this is the UK version. Oh, okay. I feel like we so had a, something, up. a single with that at the radio station. Yeah, maybe, there is maybe. there is a U, yeah there is a US version which doesn't have all the tracks and everything. Got it. So that I've just got, cover got, like it was like I've seeing got the, a I've got very nineties cover. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. So and uh, the in your room single, the the seven inch version uh, was the Zephyr mix remixed by. Uh, Grunge Darling, Butch Vig, and 
it pales in your room the album version is probably my all-time favorite track of theirs and really epitomizes that band it just builds throughout the entire six minutes and the lyrics it, like it if you're looking for a song that represents the band this is one of them and it was unfortunately turned into a generic song i say it sounds like garbage because he worked with duke erickson and uh steve marker who also formed garbage a year later so um makes sense yeah yeah so, so yeah so but uh continuing on with the troubles so in February of 1994, they start uh, the exotic leg in Johannesburg, and Alan Wilder suffers from kidney stones, and that. Um, and so, yeah, so they postponed a couple of dates there. Uh, while they were down there, he had surgery, and that, because uh, it was either that or try to pass a hedgehog <laughs> through a golf hole, which isn't happening. <laughs> and um, so, uh, and then um, towards the end of the exotic lakes, they continue on to Australia and Southeast Asia. Uh, going back, so Andy Fletcher is dealing with depression. He can no longer continue and that. So at the end of March in Hawaii, that's the last time all four members were on the stage at the same time. And so uh, he leaves, goes back home, they still have the final U.S. leg, a second leg going through, and they promote their tour manager who started out hauling equipment for them in 1980, Daryl Balmont, to take over on keys. And um, so, I mean, this is always one of the great debates of what does Andy Fletcher do? <laughs> and that, I mean, he is not the musician that Alan or Martin are, but He's a better keyboard player than probably a lot of people give credit for because he does have parts. Yes, Alan is dealing with all the main melodies. Yes, Martin has the secondary encounter melodies, but there's still a lot of the samples and triggers and other stuff that goes on. A lot of those sounds are going through his keyboards <laughs> and that. So, I, I, I mean, and I mean, he, Alan sat down with Daryl and they did this in Hawaii over a week and eventually learned the parts and then the at the beginning of April, they start in South America, and that's when Daryl starts on stage and continues on throughout the um, the U.S. tour. So, so like I said, all the members were, were casualties, and, and that had had some issue uh, with this. So, um, and then at the end, obviously uh, in um, in Cincinnati, uh, they've gone misjudges his jump off of the stage and that and lands on some of the fixed seats in the front and cracks his ribs <laughs> and already he's dealing with a drug problem and now he's on painkillers as well so at the end of the tour everyone is 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 spent and that so they take some time away um and then when they meet it's just alan martin and uh fletch and Alan had decided, I'm going to wait some time, put my distance from myself from the tour, because obviously at the end of the tour, especially one like this, uh, it's like, you don't want to make any rash decisions. And he meets with them and then ultimately decides that he is going to leave the band. And um, I mean, there's lots of debates. He released an official statement on uh, June 1st, 1995. 
which was also his 36th birthday. And um, I mean, I mean, it was a combination of a lot of stuff. And I mean, obviously he had issues with Fletch. There was communication between him and Martin were at an all-time low throughout the songs of Faith and Devotion. I mean, there are video clips online of them doing the tour setup and pre-programming all that for the tour for the violation world violation tour for devotional Alan did everything himself so I mean like this is not a team and, and obviously and as well Dave's in his own world I mean Dave found out through through facts and uh, and Dave's admit I mean like yeah it might have been a bit self-centered of him but but he had his own problems going on as well like what, whatever I'm mean, like like starting at 95 I mean Dave did go in and out of rehab but ultimately that did not stick so but like i said unfortunately alan leaves um it was the best time i mean people say what would have happened if he stayed on he wouldn't have lasted past the, the ultra recording session everything that was bothering him throughout the songs of faith and devotions sessions would have been amplified because um just before we get into those, I mean, obviously the first big issue that happened with Dave was his attempted suicide attempt in August of '95, and that. Okay. So that was his first uh, first dance with death, and that. So, so this is before the recording, but it shows what state of mind he was in. Um, the other things, just a little sidebar: Martin Gore did stay productive in this time. He did record a cover of Lover. Larry Cohen's um, uh, uh, Coming Back to You uh, on the Tower of Song tribute album. And he also did a, a remix of uh, Garbage uh, Queer, uh, the most beautiful girl in town uh, mix. So he, he stayed somewhat busy, but obviously when they start going back to record Ultra, uh, the first sessions in uh, New York, Dave's just a mess. They can't even get a single vocal take out of him. They have one vocal that made it to Ultra for uh, Sister of Night, and that's multiple vocal tracks taken together. So obviously the recording sessions weren't going well. So like I said, even if Alan stuck around, it, everything from Devotion would have been amplified. He, he would have been like, no, this is it. <laughs> so I mean, I mean, there, there, there's no whataboutism about it, <laughs> about his leaving. So let's talk about Ultra because... I know what you said in terms of what are your, you know, favorite records. I kind of consider this one to be my favorite Depeche Mode album. I guess the one I go back to the most wow. often. Yeah. There's just, I, I think um, Martin Gore has two like really good songs on this record. Home is just like, that's a really good track. Showing me home for sing. 
I don't usually think of Gore as singing the like singles, but has he has he sang any lead on any singles? Yes. So uh, in '84, there was a double A side with Blasphemous Rumors and Somebody. So Martin Gore obviously doing Somebody. And then in uh, 1986 on Black Celebration, A Question of Lust was the second single. Again, that was a Martin okay. Gore song. And then Home would be the third one. Okay. So. And that has one of my favorite mixes. The Air remix of Home is, is, is just yeah. amazing. And uh, Jay, what was your... Um thoughts on this record in comparison to the first two well i mean starting with the cover i mean it's the most 90s stereotypical looking <laughs> of the three that we reviewed uh i think sonically too it, it it starts off you know pretty angsty with barrel gun which felt different to me lyrically and like even vocally it sort of went from this like kind of moody dark romantic feel to suddenly like now we're we're angsty angsty and a little bit more angry um i think home is a great song it's no good is excellent wow. you get some more guitars here too mm -hmm. um, there's even a guitar solo on useless um and i think more live instrument sounds the second half to me feels like unfinished there's a lot of like there's a couple interludes and um just some weaker material i think so to me of the three it feels like I don't know, probably the weakest of the three records in terms of just overall. Tim, um, I'm fascinated that this is like a, a go-to for you. Because I, I do, I love the singles off of this record, but like this is one that I've, that I actually never like bought the vinyl of. Like it's not, I just I don't. have it on vinyl. I mean, I have like, I have a bunch of 12 inches from it, but I don't have i mean i'm sure i've got the cd in a box somewhere you know but like th this is it's not one that i like cherish um, it's because a, this came out album. this came out when i was definitely like addicted to music like i wasn't yeah. that way when the first two albums of the decade came out but by this point you know i'm in my what is this 97 i'm in my fifth year of college and yeah you are <laughs> yeah you are gonna do my sixth in a year and um but i liked how this album like you said jay there there's it sounds of the time in terms of yeah. like you compare um barrel of a gun to uh uh ava door off of a door <laughs> those are yeah, very I mean, similar songs let's not but <laughs> well, well actually right there just, there's I'm a just... band that essentially made a tribute album to Depeche Mode with Adore. Okay, I'll give you that. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and yeah. have previously done a nice cover uh of uh Never, Never Let, Let You Down, Down Again. Again. Yeah, it was a B-side to one of their singles. So yeah, so not, not this this album for me. So I mean just backing up, I mean the one thing that we we skipped over, I mean like I said I talked about the poor recording sessions but then at the end of uh may in 96 this is when dave has his second dance with death and has the drug overdose <laughs> and then he was clinically dead and they had to revive him and uh and then um after that he's arrested for drug possession and threatened to leave be exported from the, the u.s and of course this is the one that 
make them enter rehab, make them stick. And I, I mean, I remember hearing about the, the drug overdose. I'm like, oh my, my goodness. Uh, and that, I mean, I mean, even the suicide, it's just like, oh my goodness. And it's like, okay, what's, what's going to happen? And then when this album comes out, so more accurately, the singles. So Barrel of Gun came out February 3rd of 97. So I've got here. And I'm in first year university now studying engineering. And most of my, a lot of time, I, I was usually in the residence lounge because I had much music on. I mean, like I'm listening, I'm now, okay, there's all these different people around. People are listening to different stuff. And now I'm like, okay, I'm absorbing all this this music in and I'm, I have much music on me while I'm doing my assignments and that because I, I like them. I mean, like, okay, yeah, I also stereotypical engineer. Yeah, I walk, watch Star Trek once a week and <laughs> that. So, uh, but I'm here doing a calculus assignment and then all of a sudden I hear a barrel of gun. I'm like, oh my God, this sounds like the best. Well, I look up and I, I see them. I'm like, Oh my, like, I was just as shocked because, I mean, like, eight months earlier, I mean, it's like, or not even, like, se seven months. It's just like, okay, he's had this overdose. Now they finished this album because, I mean, when he had the overdose, like I said, there was all these questions about what's going to happen with the album. I mean, they had poor sessions. There was not much material and that. And then, I mean, that, that weekend after my, my calculus midterm, I ran up to the mall and picked up the the single and this is this is the one that started beyond the, the hunt for uk stuff because there was a different track listing and different remixes and it's just like oh okay and i i really wasn't exposed to much for for uh cd imports and all that in, in my hometown and so i uh it, it just took me by complete surprise and then and, uh, and then on, on March 31st, you have It's No Good re released, and it's just like you see the video again. And, and, and both of these videos, I mean, they're, they're, they're strong videos, and, uh, and both of the singles, uh, Peril the Gun is, is tied for their highest charting single in the UK at number four with People Are People, and then in 2005 with, uh, with Precious. And then uh, It's No Good goes to, to number five in the UK. I mean, like, these are two of their highest charting singles. <laughs> And that, and that beating the ones, enjoy the silence only went to number six. I feel you, and in your room only went to number eight. I mean, right. these are two songs that charted higher, and that I mean, and shows what the demand was. And then, right, and then the album was released on on April fourteenth, uh, and uh, and this one they they didn't tour for. None of them were strong enough. I mean, they're still recovering. <laughs> From the last tour still almost uh three years later and uh and so i mean unfortunately it it, it did cost them because i mean there was obviously a lot of promotion in that um they they released home on on june 16th uh as a single and then um i'll, I'll come back to the last one but uh, in a minute but uh that that one kind of got bypassed in in the u.s um and then at the end of october we have on uh the 13th alan wilder comes back and he released drifting the first single for unsung methods and then on the 20th is useless uh, in, in october and then on the 27th was alan wilder's follow-up to bloodline uh, recoil unsung oh, methods wow. and this is uh, a spoiler alert and a note for tim and jay 
this will be my pick for this year. Okay. <laughs> this one deserves a deep dive. <laughs> and that. So I'm not going to say, say too much so afterwards. You mentioned so. that they didn't tour for this record. Did they, no, do they, they did. do a tour for the rest of the decade? No. Yeah. So they, well. they did. So they did do two launch parties for ultra. They did one on April 10th in London where they played the, the four singles uh, from, uh, from ultra and never let me down again. So this is also the first time that use utilizing uh, Christian Eigner on drums, who has been the touring musician with them since uh, the keyboards were uh, a couple other people um, and that, but uh, yeah, so uh, they, and then in uh, May 16th, they did uh, another release party in Los Angeles and that. So they only did the two shows for that, but there was no, no tour. And then, which kind of leads us into to 98. So first thing that was the, the follow-up, uh, Alan Wilder released uh, on March 9th, the single for Stalker with Douglas McCarthy doing vocals again. But then they decide, okay, now's the time. They had discussed about with Ultra and that, especially like starting out, okay, let's do an EP or a couple of singles and let's do a follow-up to the singles 81 to 85. And they released on um, September 7th, uh, Only When I Lose Myself. And then on September 28th, the day after my birthday, uh, the singles 86 to 98, which collected it. And at this time, they decide now we're going to do another tour and this was a small tour this one i've got here was only 66 dates over a four-month period and that's so quite quite small in comparison to what they had previously done and then they don't tour again until 2001 for 2001 when, when exciter comes out yeah yeah so okay. this, this this tour i i missed uh um I started my third year engineering in uh, 98. And so I'm going through my courses. And so my power systems analysis and design course, uh, Dr. Castle, he kept playing updates for a, a potential midterm. And it's like, oh, we've got another midterm at this time or whatever. And, and then, so the day before the tickets are going on sale for the North American date. So on Friday, September 19th, going to my class, he's like, I finally found a date. And I'm like, oh no, I just had that, sense that disturbance in the fourth force. He pulls it back, November 5th, 7 p.m., the night that the Peshmo is going to be in Toronto. And that, because I had everything planned out. It's like, okay, I can get the, I know where I can get the ticket. I, on Fridays, this, the concert was on a Thursday. On Fridays, I only had one class at eight o'clock in the morning. I didn't have any other thing else until like noon. So it's like, okay, I can sleep in and get notes from, from uh, Rod or, or one of my other friends. And uh, and then he shows the date. I'm just like, no. And he's like, is there a problem with this date? I'm like, I just kept my mouth shut because I'm like, I, yeah, there is. But I can't use it as an excuse to postpone a midterm. And that, so I, I was, I was, I was quite disappointed. In hindsight, and if I had probably more money and and was a, a bit more, uh, had a bit more bravado than I do now, I probably would have gone to Montreal on November sixth. <laughs> but that would have been a lot more money and a lot more travel from because uh, at the time I was in university in London, Ontario, which was only like an hour and a half bus ride away from downtown Toronto. So, gotcha. Well, yeah. I'm 
and I will say that Tim, of course, that was uh, you know the fall after gra- I graduated from Bowling Green. Mm-hmm. I was only working part time at 97X at that point. But because I had been music director at our college state radio station, WFAL, and I had uh, close friends at Warner, that became, that was the one time that I actually got, you know, I got invited to go to the meet and greet and actually get to get to go backstage and see them. And I'm still pissed because I, I do have a signed copy then of the singles collection but they would not let us take photos and they only they did one group photograph from that night of everyone who was there that never ever made it to me so somewhere someone at warner brothers has a photograph uh, (laughs) of a bunch of us in detroit michigan at the palace of auburn hills Standing awkwardly yeah. with the band. <laughs> yeah. Ian, I never Ian, saw it. Never saw no, it. No, and the one thing that um, the, the singles tour, I mean, like I said, I already mentioned that Christian Agner was with them for the ultra parties. Uh, this is when they bring on uh, Peter Gordino for uh, the touring musician for keyboards. But uh, no, um, since we're at the end of the decade, uh, I will mention the only other thing that happened of note. So in 1999, uh, Martin Gore was awarded the Ivor Novello Award for International Achievement in the United Kingdom, and that and that closes off the decade. But no, the only last rare thing I have here that I saved for the end are signed drumsticks from Alan Wilder for the devotional tour. Nice. So another another crown in in, in my collection. So. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and one my wife constantly busts my balls over <laughs> and i'm not walking into the other room to take it off the wall but i do have from our old uh the radio station lobby i have a lithograph of the songs yeah. of faith and uh and devotion art that's signed yeah. and it's in a very nice purple nice frame. i wonder if we'll have all that stuff out there will <laughs> Yeah, I mean that was one of the, the that was one of the perks when uh, when the FM station went under, we got to go in order of seniority, and pick the things we wanted off the wall. I mean, as you'll see behind me, there is a Kid A platinum plaque and a Fiona Apple title plaque. Those those are from the old ninety seven X lobby. Wow, nice. Among with many other random things in my house. <laughs> So you mentioned we're at the end of the decade here, and usually we would ask at the end of these episodes, did this band survive the 90s or did the 90s do them in? Um, I'll go last. <laughs> well, in this case, it's it's not like we're Van Halen where they disappeared yeah. for 12 years and then, yeah. and then nothing, and then we put out a record and then there was not much. And then, you know what I mean? Like, well, this band survived the 90s barely i mean barely survived clearly physically barely yeah but yeah but everything like unlike other bands and that i mean they clear yes they survived but i mean anything that would have done them in was internal it was nothing to do with changing in musical taste 
or the public or anything. Everything was internal, whether it was through substance abuse, whether it was drugs or alcohol, or a band member leaving and that. But again, that was due to internal friction and strife. So, like, they, they clearly survived. And, uh, and even then, I mean, like, unlike a lot of their contemporaries, I mean, to this date, they are still releasing top 10 albums. All their albums have gone top 10. They are still selling out arenas and stadiums in North mm-hmm. America and, 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 and Europe. I mean, this is not a band that was done in by the '90s by by any sense. I mean, and like, and if anything, I mean, I mean, there's always this debate: '80s band versus '90s band. I mean, like they kept building in the '80s. They peaked in the '90s. Number two, number one, number one for the three albums, and not to mention number five for the singles collection in the UK, and seven, one. And, and and five for the three albums. I mean, all of them were top ten. So I, I mean, yeah, like, this is this is not a band that was the nine. They defined the nineties themselves, or defined their nineties. I'll say, <laughs> and that they didn't define the nineties. I mean, everyone has their own opinions, and a lot of times it comes back to a little band from Seattle. But they um, but no, they 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 didn't say, oh, we're going to cave in. This is what we're going to do. Yeah. And you could, I think you in the nineties, then by the end of it, you could hear Depeche Mode have having such a big influence over that decade. Not just that they were big in it that themselves, but they had already influenced enough people where like Nine Inch Nails becomes a huge band in the nineties. Nice. Obviously Trent Reznor is a Depeche Mode fan, but Depeche Mode being first in terms of, bringing electronic music to such a large global audience well and, pays and away that. for nine inch nails in it in its you know not, uh, not just that. i mean everyone looks at the electronics i mean but they were one of the pioneering bands for for sampling and, and, and samplers and and that i mean they they went on uh, i mean yes there's other industrial bands like throbbing gristle but i mean they influenced the industrial genre they had a heavy hand in goth they techno house music from detroit i mean they were in all these different genres and uh, i mean it's a shame uh, i mean we didn't really touch on 98 yes there was the Florida masses album released in august of 98 but oh, yeah. um and then you guys have previously covered that but i mean like it would have been nice if there was some of those other aspects that was involved instead of just a, a general uh, who's who of alternative bands at the time Right. And, and, and that, but um, uh, I, I mean, and I discussed, we discussed that, I brought that up on the, the Discord lately. I mean, one of my favorite tracks off of that tribute album was, was Gus Gus with Monument. I mean, he, the, that that project, they, they took the, a song from, that wasn't a single off of, at the time, could have been most people's weakest album from the band and made it their own. And, when they did the 12 inch uh on the the limited 12 inch for uh, only when i lose myself i mean their remix is phenomenal I, that, I was just gonna say i mean like this makes me want to just go deep diving into all my favorite remixes because that the gus gus long mix of only when i lose myself is top top five for me oh yeah and uh yeah so uh, i mean that's like you, you I mean, with other bands, I mean, for the end of 90s, I mean, like some, you're not going to have a band that 
has this. I mean, you two and REM are probably the only two, and you guys have done those episodes that yep. you can say, yes, maintain that that upper crust throughout the decade. Other bands have faltered in that, whether oh, yeah. it be through their own or through the public. And I would even say U2's catalog, I mean, really since early 2000s, has not been that strong. Not as strong as the Patreon bonus episodes in the 90s or in the 2000s. (laughs) Well, and I mean, you know, I I don't want to raise the ire of Ian, but I I tapped out with Depeche Mode really like Exciter. I mean, I, I, I have not cared for much of anything in the last 20 years. But well, two thousand five playing the angel is definitely uh, the band's uh, some girls moment, <laughs> and that to, to <laughs> use a music cliche. But uh, uh, I mean, but the, they 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 all have their their charms. I mean, like I I mean I could rank them, and that yes, the two thousands is obviously not as much up there compared to the eighties and nineties. But I mean, there there's still stuff in there because I mean I was going. To, through the albums leading up to the release of Momentum Mori last Friday and and that and it's just like it's like you know what yeah I like this I don't this doesn't work this does and um and it's it's always uh it hit hit or miss and it's just like okay yeah I mean like and, and some of it is as well as age I mean obviously I mean like like after uh, after Exciter I mean all of us are <laughs> now going to be in our, our, our late 20s, early 30s. So we're kind of past that that music definition mode in our brains and that. So that that switch is firmly jammed on. And it's just like, you know what? It, sometimes it's like, yeah, it doesn't strike. But I mean, but then it's like you go back and, and listen to those albums. Like, you know what? There, there are stuff there. Jay? Uh, I'm going to guess this is a, a survive the nineties rating for you. For sure. I think what's super interesting is they're a band that the story I'm sort of hearing as I piece all this together and listen to everybody talk is that they've created such a strong foundation in the eighties of like, just continuing to work, put out a record, develop their sound, like just enduring that by the time they got to the nineties, it just peaked musically and they exploded commercially if you've got those two things going for you like as long as like everybody's healthy and you keep working like it's really hard to screw that up at that point even though a lot of bands do it but uh and even now that it's what i mean basically down to two members they're still putting out new music touring obviously selling out having no issues it's like a, a testament to putting in the hard work which i don't know if ever's going to happen again for a decade and you know slowly building up a fan base and um seeing it pay off it's difficult in any music environment now uh just to get that support and uh, i mean they they lucked out with with uh daniel miller i mean like i i mean he he's been a father figure to the band and uh i mean like he helped nurture and and develop them and i mean obviously i mean he produced their their first uh, five albums but uh uh, I mean, you, you don't get that nowadays. It's like, you, yeah. you know what? We, we, we want that. We want that hit signal. We want that hit album. And if we don't see that, we're not signing you. 
and that, not like, you know what? I like what you're doing. Let's work at this. <laughs> you know, it's interesting to you. Like my perception of the band commercially is that they're still kind of alternative. Like they're not that overexposed to where like, like my wife was not going to know who Dave Gahan is. Like she will, if I showed him a, showed her a picture of the band, she's not going to know it's Depeche Mode. If I played right. the songs, she would know. Yeah. But like no. they're, it, it's just like this really interesting, like they maintain a, like maybe even a little bit of mystique and like still have this alternative feel to them, even though they're commercially incredibly successful. It's very unusual. They, that is an unusual the, the line that- to walk. Yeah, the band has always acknowledged that. I mean, they always feel like we're outsiders and that, yeah. like we're we're doing our our our, our thing. I mean, and, and again, I mean, like even if you look at a lot of the alternative peers in in the '80s going through, I mean, like they didn't have three guys sitting behind keyboards with uh, a reel-to-reel tape for the backing track, backing tracks and drums <laughs> off to the side. Or right. on stage in the case of the early days. I mean, like there is always something else going on and that. So, I mean, even even as they were coming up and developing, I mean, and, and going back, World Violation and Devotional, that didn't change. I mean, yes, Alan Water came out and played some drums on uh, a half dozen songs, but I mean, it was still like three guys behind keyboards. <laughs> right, which is not the norm for really the 90s or the 80s uh in terms of global success uh in terms of album sales and touring and everything that's made like you said it jay like kind of this successful combination of cool and mystique and i don't know they just yeah they just don't ever seem to have like lost the coolness they've just always had that air about them yeah, Which a lot in, of bands a, don't. Yeah, in an era now where like everybody has to be on social media sharing every thought they ever had, it's I'm always drawn to bands that still have mystique and still value mystique. And there's, I think, something really important about. I hope we don't lose it, but like where you don't know everything about an artist, like you hear stories here and there, but like mostly you know them through the music, not through, you know, celebrity gossip or like them posting every thought of they've ever had on social media. It's kind of nice. Yeah. Well, this was a deep dive on Depeche (laughs) Mode in the 90s. Thank you both for taking part in this. Ian, this was a great pleasure. I'm glad we got to um, go into your brain (laughs) and excavate so much information. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, And there's much more. I mean, like like I said, I mean, this, this is a band. Like I said it was my first album I bought myself. I mean, this is and everything goes through them. I mean, this is a band that has definitely shaped me. I mean, musically. I mean, even personally. I mean, my my wife jokes that I dance like Dave Gone, and I'm like, not intentionally. So, but I guess there's maybe some <laughs> subconscious element to it, just because it's like it's like like I said. I mean, this this is definitely one that's band that has heavily influenced me uh, on a lot of different aspects and and uh, i mean and i mean thank thank thanks to my wife i mean she definitely has a lot of a lot of patience and and that for uh for it like i said i'm just a devoted fan but she says no 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 it's obsessed and that so she's like i don't know 
anyone who has the amount of material that you do on a single band in your basement. <laughs> well, she'd be surprised if she heard about Kiss fans. Yeah, I was gonna say she needs to, <laughs> yeah. you need to take her to a Kiss convention, and then she'll just <laughs> or, or you know, grateful forgive dad. you. Or, or grateful dad. Or grateful dad, exactly. For sure. Yeah. 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 Oh, I. But she she she's not aware of how obsessive uh, uh, or um compulsive uh fans can be about buying uh merch for their favorite bands uh yeah that happens quite a bit um it has been a long evening i know we all have to get up and go to work in the morning so i'm gonna say thank you to both ian and shiv for coming back on anytime this was a lot of fun and uh especially because i got to listen to a lot of depeche mode in last week so that was cool. That's just a Tuesday for me. That's just <laughs> Tuesday mode day. Uh, I want to remind folks, if you want to suggest an album, you can go to digmeoutpodcast.com, suggest an album page. We're at Patreon, which you can join us at, at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com is where those albums get suggested for our monthly tournaments. 27 albums enter one album leaves voted on by our patrons it's also where you can read the box newsletter sent out every week with new releases relevant to 80s 90s and now the aughts uh music movies tv books we cover it with new reviews every week and finally apple podcast is where you go to leave some positive feedback about the show uh for jay i'm tim we're out We'll be back next week with another episode. Dig me out. It's only when I lose myself in silence I find myself. I find myself. It's only when I lose myself in silence.